Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship, all of our devotion, all of our lives. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this great book we call the Bible. You have shown us who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit from all of eternity. And we thank you for revealing yourself, because if you didn't, we couldn't find you. We couldn't know you. We couldn't connect with you. And so we thank you for drawing close to us. We thank you for sending your Son to take on flesh so that we might know you. We thank you for the redemption that you've won through the death of your Son. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to respond appropriately to knowing you, that our lives would be changed, characterized by a relationship with the God of the universe. Thank you for giving us insight into your word. Help us now as we listen and as we sit to receive what you have for us. Speak powerfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Moses, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, couldn't have written a more elegant, straightforward, and simple description of the momentous event of creation. Yet, the seven Hebrew words reflected here have stood at the center of controversy, conflict, and confusion for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. If we bring our typical journalistic questions to interrogate Moses' summary of the great event, you know, the five W's and an H, who, what, when, where, why, and how, we must draw in other parts of Scripture to fill out the picture. For our purposes this morning, zooming in on the who question is most important, and we'll approach the how question as well, at least from one particular angle. These words that open the Bible, that reflect the very beginning of creation, the very beginning of history, state a single personal actor. Moses introduces us to the main character of the Bible, the main character of history, who also happens to be the author of the Bible and the author of history. He's introduced to us with the Hebrew title, Elohim, We are immediately confronted with a mystery as this title, Elohim, is a plural noun attached to a singular verb. The grammar suggests a theology. The single actor, the single creator, has a plurality in himself. We translate Elohim here and more than 2,300 more times as God, a singular noun with a capital G. I expect we'll explore the meaning of this title on another occasion in the near future, but for now, just note that Moses ascribes the responsibility of creating everything that exists to one God who himself exists as a plurality. Throughout the Old Testament, this God is referred to by the personal name Yahweh, and Yahweh alone receives credit for creating all that exists. Quickly, as the narrative of Genesis progresses, we are introduced to this one God's spirit, 
In verse 2, the spirit of Elohim is described as hovering over the waters Elohim had created. Perhaps we are to envision the spirit holding the waters in place, ensuring that they don't disappear, evaporate, or otherwise dissipate before God finishes his creative acts. When we leap to the New Testament, continuing to have the question who in our mind, who was involved in the act of creation, we are introduced to another person. And in fact, the New Testament writers, under the guidance of the same Holy Spirit Moses was guided by, ascribe the responsibility of creating everything that exists to this other person. For example, John's Gospel begins by famously echoing Genesis 1.1. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Pause. Genesis 1.1 begins, In the beginning God... Now John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Moses didn't seem to mention a capital W word who was with Elohim. John adds, and the Word was God. So now we are to consider someone who was somehow with God, but also was God. To clarify, John develops this in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John writes this to clarify, not to confuse. This capital W word was with God, was God, and was involved in the act of creation. Notice the prepositions here in verse 3. All things were made through him, and nothing was made without him. John echoes David in Psalm 33, 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. Ten times in Genesis 1, we read the phrase, and God said. The author of Hebrews goes further, I think, and encapsulates even Genesis 1, 1 in our understanding of how God created. Hebrews eleven three says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. John speaks of the Word. This reflects the fact that God created by speaking. When God said the words, let there be light, it was the capital W Word that caused those words to result in the existence of light. And that capital W Word was not something or someone separate from God. John is drawing out the significance of the plurality of Elohim in connection with the how of creation. It's not until verse 17 of John 1 where John identifies the capital W word as the man, Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't a man in Genesis 1.1. Instead, he was, as John makes clear in, John 14, in verse 14, the only begotten of the Father. And he further identifies him in verse 18 as the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. I won't give you all the reasons, but I believe the New American Standard Bible has the best translation of this phrase, and it's important to see it this way because John is explicitly identifying Jesus as the only begotten God, which suggests his eternal nature as eternal son of an eternal father. John is helping us see that creation was a father-son project. 
But whereas John depicts the Son as the Word through whom God created, Paul says more. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. The distinctions between the three prepositions need to be maintained by Him, through Him, and for Him. John only spoke of the through him aspect. Now, some versions have the first preposition as in him or by means of him. There's some ambiguity here, but I believe that Paul means to indicate that Christ is responsible, is the responsible agent of creation, not merely the instrument God used to create. Paul does say through him at the end of the verse. But I think it's important to affirm that Christ is being given the responsibility for creation as well. He and his Father share responsibility. Christ was not a mere instrument, not merely the powerful word God used to create. Rather, he was a full partner in the work with his Father. And also, yes, the Father worked through the agency of the Son with the Spirit's involvement as well to bring everything into existence. Paul makes this statement in verse 16 to ground his assertion that the Messiah is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we shouldn't read this to mean that Paul is saying that Jesus was the first person God created. Rather, the word firstborn does not have primary reference to sequence. Rather, it emphasizes inheritance rights. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it was not the firstborn, the firstborn in sequence who inherited. And yet, they were the firstborn because they got the inheritance. Paul is saying that the Messiah has the right to inherit all of creation. Why? Because he as the eternal Son of God, created it all. And as he notes at the end of verse 16, the Father and the Son work together to create all that exists for him, for the Messiah, for his glory, for his enjoyment, and for his use. Likewise, the author of Hebrews quotes the words of Psalm 102.25 and addresses them to the Son. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So the work of creation is a thoroughly Trinitarian work. The choice of Moses to refer to the Creator with the plural title Elohim while using singular verbs may have been a Spirit-inspired hint pointing in this direction all along. Suddenly, Genesis 1.1 has a lot more to say. But what about Lady Wisdom? Already in our journey through Proverbs 1-9, we've encountered a claim that Lady Wisdom was involved in creation. In Proverbs 3.19 and 20, we read, Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. When Pastor Ken preached from these verses, he drew out how God introduced Lady Wisdom to us. Thus, God's wisdom is imprinted in creation so that people can receive instruction from God's wisdom 
through creation. This is to reflect the truth that God's general revelation comes from his own wisdom, just as God's special revelation comes from his own wisdom. As one writer puts it, creation displays God's wisdom. Trees and animals and bugs all create after their kind. The world works together in an infinitely complex ecosystem. Rains water the earth. The earth produces food. Life continues. These things happen not by chance, but by the wisdom of our Creator. It is not haphazard. It is not an accident. It is Yahweh's wise work. In Proverbs 8, 22-31, our main passage for this morning, we'll explore the most significant teaching in this regard. Solomon is going to elaborate poetically on Lady Wisdom's involvement in creation. I'd like to go ahead and read those verses and begin to wrestle with some of the controversy that has surrounded the whole passage. One writer speaks of the theological controversy surrounding this passage as resulting in this text having a bruised legacy. I'm reading from the ESV, and we're going to have to deal with some translation differences this morning. And as you listen, recall that Lady Wisdom is being personified and presented as speaking here. So Lady Wisdom is the speaker, beginning in verse 22. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Now, as we have observed many times, if you've been with us during this series, Lady Wisdom points to Jesus in several ways. But it's very important for us to be clear on exactly how she points to Jesus and how she does not point to Jesus. Solomon is using a literary expression, a figure of speech, a rhetorical device. He is personifying God's wisdom, God's attribute of wisdom, in order to teach us what the quality of wisdom can look like as God shares it with human beings. Solomon has chosen to vividly portray the quality of wisdom in terms of a woman, who acts and speaks in certain ways. Thus, he is not suggesting that wisdom is some kind of goddess or that we should understand wisdom to have an existence independent of God. However, since the earliest days of the church, Christians have seen more in this particular passage. Given what we read in John and Colossians earlier, many Christians have concluded that John and Paul said what they said about Jesus because of what they read in this passage in Proverbs. Thus, most Christians throughout church history, until very recently, have believed that Lady Wisdom is Jesus. 
that you could just substitute the word Jesus in for the word wisdom in Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 3. This practice resulted in one of the most famous heresies in church history, often called Arianism, because the man who was the chief outspoken proponent of this view was named Arius, who lived and taught in the late 200s and early 300s. The heresy developed largely because of the use of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, often referred to as the Septuagint. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The New Testament writers used the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a translation, and like all translations into every language on the planet, each one has strengths and weaknesses. But in any case, had the early church leaders maintained a diligent study and working knowledge of biblical Hebrew, they might not have struggled with this particular text so much. The first words of Proverbs 8.22 in the Greek translation can be brought into English simply as, The Lord created me. One modern writer refers to this as a mistranslation that caused Christians of the earliest days after the New Testament a terrible but unnecessary headache. Solomon is talking about wisdom. But if Paul, saying that Christ is the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1, means we should understand that Proverbs 8.22 is really talking about Christ, then here is a verse that could be plainly saying that Christ was created and therefore not eternal. Thus, almost entirely from this passage, Arius developed a slogan to summarize his doctrine, there was a time when the Son was not. Thus, Arianism teaches that the Son of God was a created being, the first created being, through whom, then, God created everything else. But the Son is not eternal and not, therefore, fully divine. Notice that I said Arianism teaches, present tense. Arius was indeed condemned as a heretic, and the Nicene Creed was developed partially as a corrective measure against this teaching, but it never completely died out. The same fundamental heresy about Jesus is taught today by the Jehovah's Witnesses, and their use of this passage is identical. Now, what is fascinating to me is that the opponents of Arius didn't argue that this passage is not talking about Jesus. They continued believing that Paul and John both were developing Proverbs 8 when they spoke of Jesus' involvement in creation. Therefore, they believed that it is appropriate to see Proverbs 8 as directly speaking of Jesus. And they continued using the Greek translation of the Old Testament in this passage. Different folks argued slightly differently on this point, but the main way this was addressed was to suggest that Proverbs 8.22, the Lord created me, refers to the incarnation. That is to say, God created Jesus' human nature and physical body. Then when you go down to verse 25, God brought forth his eternal son before the earth was created. Thus, the solution that was generally agreed upon and has been reflected in Christian commentary and teaching on Proverbs 8 throughout church history has been that this passage speaks mysteriously of both the divine nature of the Son of God as eternal, 
preceding creation, as well as the human nature of Jesus created at a particular point in time in history. I remain thoroughly dissatisfied by that solution, unconvinced uh, that this is a good solution to the problem. Yes, this passage, like every passage in the Bible, points to Jesus. I am utterly convinced of that. But if we're going to just try to plug Jesus in to the passage, I suggest that plugging him in as a substitution for wisdom is the wrong place. I don't believe this is how Paul or John read Proverbs 8 either. Let me see if I can generally summarize my point before we get into unpacking this passage. We should be able to see that Solomon has developed a rhetorical device, a personification of God's wisdom. Lady wisdom is a personification of God's wisdom. Jesus is not a personification of God's wisdom. Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. Lady wisdom is a literary figure of speech. Jesus is the God-man. Instead of substituting Jesus for wisdom in Proverbs 8, I suggest substituting Jesus for Yahweh, the Lord, as the appropriate interpretive move. What we're going to see from this passage is that Lady Wisdom is not said to actively do any of the creative work. Rather, she is pictured as a kind of witness of creation. The point, then, so here's the point of the whole passage before we get into unpacking it as I see it. The point that Solomon is wanting to press on his son and his readers is that we should want wisdom because wisdom understands how the world works best because wisdom was there to see how God created the world in the first place. That's all. Now, in suggesting this line of interpretation, I'm consciously disagreeing with genuinely brilliant and faithful Christian interpreters of Scripture. Guys from earlier generations like Athanasius, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Owen, Spurgeon, Edwards, Gill, as well as modern theologians whose work is otherwise incredibly helpful. I am professedly following the line of the minority report. I'm not alone, but it's definitely the minority perspective among 20th and 21st century interpreters. Up until the 19th century, it seems that almost all Christian interpreters wanted to hold on to seeing Jesus as equal to wisdom in this passage. And let me be clear. These folks are seeking to be faithful to the text, and they have worked hard to hold their understanding of this passage together with everything else in Scripture. I would say that they might have worked too hard on this occasion, when a much simpler solution is ready at hand. One writer I read wrestling with the larger issues admitted that, for him at least, a major motivator in not wanting to depart from the traditional understanding is that it would call into question, potentially, the validity of part of the Nicene Creed, and he's uncomfortable doing that. The Nicene Creed was first formulated at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, And it has certainly been a valid and very helpful summary of core Christian doctrine. For our discussion this morning, the key part of the creed goes like this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. In a three-step argument, it is suggested that this particular phrase is defined by, first, 
observing Paul's identification of Jesus as the wisdom of God from 1 Corinthians 1.24. Second, understanding John's repeated references to Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. And third, assuming that the Old Testament background for both ideas must be Proverbs 8.22-31, as wisdom is depicted as begotten before certain aspects of creation. For me, I can happily affirm the key line from the Nicene Creed based on point one and point two without point three. I believe point three is unnecessary. Ray Ortland suggests that using Proverbs 8 to support the deity of Christ is the product of misplaced efforts. Ortland also points to an earlier historian's perhaps uncharitable assessment of the debate between Arius and his orthodox opponents as two blindfolded men trying to hit each other when it came to focusing attention on this passage. We need not abandon the tradition completely, and we can hold on to a much simpler understanding of the passage in Proverbs 8, and we can still affirm that the passage has something to teach us about Jesus Christ. Now, after the longest and perhaps most theologically dense sermon introduction I've presented thus far in my career, will you join me in the text? Allow me to lead us through the passage with this historical interpretive context in mind, but let us seek first and foremost to understand the meaning Solomon, guided by the Holy Spirit, intended to communicate to his son and to his original readers. And along the way, we'll draw the connections with other parts of Scripture, and I promise we'll be done in time for ABF. The passage we're considering this morning breaks down into three sections, and I've labeled each section with a key time marker from the text. Before, when, and now. Let's consider verses 22 to 26. Recall that Solomon is depicting Lady Wisdom as speaking, addressing all of humanity. She's already given some motivation for people to listen to her. Now she's looking back at her past, her origin story, in order to further motivate people to listen to her. Look at verse 22 again. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. The verb translated possessed in the ESV is the troublesome verb that shows up in the Greek translation as created. However, the word is a very common word in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere, and it's the normal word for acquiring or getting something, usually by purchase. In other words, it's the normal commercial word for buying something. We've seen it several times in Proverbs. In chapter 4, for example, Solomon quotes David's instruction. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Now, once you get something, it's right and proper to say that you possess it. And that's how the ESV comes up with possessed as a good translation for this verb in Proverbs 8.22. However, we've observed how excellent a poet Solomon is, and it shouldn't surprise us that he has available to him a wonderful play on words that fits really well with how this develops in the next few verses. In fact, we can replicate this pun in English pretty well. Let's take a look at the very first verse in the Bible where this word appears, Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. She named him Cain because Cain sounds similar to the Hebrew Kana, which is our word meaning to get. 
or acquire. She uses the word got to essentially mean begot. Thus, in a context of conception and childbirth, this word takes on an extended connotation of begetting. Do we not speak commonly of someone having a baby? The idea in Hebrew is similar, using the normal Hebrew word for acquiring, getting, and thus possessing. When we come to Proverbs 8, then, we could read this as Lady Wisdom, Lady Wisdom essentially claiming that Yahweh is her father. Yahweh begot her. And indeed, she will use other words in the next few verses that communicate that exact idea much more plainly. As one writer summarizes verse 22, birthing wisdom was the first of his acts, and the rest of creative activity flowed out from it. Thus here, in her first statement, looking back at her origin, Lady Wisdom essentially says that the Lord has done what Proverbs says all people need to do, get wisdom. People need to get wisdom because the Lord begot wisdom way back at the beginning. It's important to remember yet again that this is poetry. The point being communicated is quite simple, although vividly expressed. Yahweh has always had wisdom. Now, I think it's important that Solomon does not use the Hebrew word normally translated create here, in spite of the Greek translator's decision to use that term in their translation of this verse. Solomon purposely seeks to communicate a different idea perhaps intending to distance himself from the confused possibility that the attribute of wisdom is a thing, perhaps one of the invisible things Paul says that God created. Figuratively speaking, as it relates to the creation, Yahweh brought his wisdom to bear on the creation of the world. That seems to be the point. In verse 23, Lady Wisdom claims, Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. The verb translated set up has some difficulties as well. The 2011 NIV has formed, and this is probably better. Most likely, the Hebrew word is the same word as we find in Psalm 139, 13, describing how the Lord knit together David in his mother's womb. This would fit with the other birthing imagery in our passage. In verses 24 and 25, she repeats the verb, I was brought forth, a word that specifies the process of a woman's labor to bring forth a baby. Thus, in a certain sense, a figurative, metaphorical sense, Lady Wisdom is presenting herself as the daughter of God. Figuratively. The main point being communicated in the imagery is that God's wisdom, as communicated in his word, in the scriptures, is organically rooted in himself and organically reflects his mind and character, just as a child is to carry forward the DNA and character of her parents. But let's focus on the timing indicators. The key phrase is the first phrase of verse 24, when there were no depths. Return to Genesis 1 with me for a moment. Genesis 1-2 describes the situation, the context, after God's original act of creation, the material he originated in the act described in verse 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The word translated deep is the same word translated depths in Proverbs 8-24. Lady Wisdom says she was brought forth when there was no deep, when there were no depths. 
Thus, Lady Wisdom was brought forth, birthed in Genesis 1-1 as a prelude to the formless, empty, watery earth described in Genesis 1-2. While Lady Wisdom represents God's eternal attribute of wisdom, this poetic portrayal focuses on her connection with creation. Verses 25 and 26 then use the word before to emphasize that she predates mountains, hills, earth, fields, and the very dust from which humanity was made. In Job 15, 7, Job's friend, Eliphaz, sarcastically asked him, or were you brought forth before the hills? Had Eliphaz directed that question to Lady Wisdom, she could have answered, why yes, as a matter of fact, I was. The mention of dust is unexpected, but it probably draws a connection between Lady Wisdom and humanity. She was there even before the material from which God made humanity was created. Thus again, the encouragement is that human beings should listen to her because she's been around longer than humanity, even longer than the stuff humanity was made of. Lady Wisdom's preeminence over material creation puts her in a unique position to understand the work of God in creation and to understand the way God designed creation and humanity to function. Therefore, she is uniquely qualified to help humanity live in this created world according to the design of the Creator. This is perhaps similar to how I try to convince my daughter that she should listen to me because I'm older and know a thing or two more than she does about life. Thus, the application, as it was last week, is that we must listen to, trust, and obey the instruction of God's wisdom as it comes to us in God's Word. But, She's got more to say about her origins. In verses 27 to 31, the key repeated word is when. And she's still painting an elaborate portrait of her connections to God's actions in creating the world. Look again at verses 27 to 29. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. I was there. That's her claim. Notice that she doesn't claim to participate in the work that God did. She's merely claiming to be a witness, an observer. We'll say more about that in relation to verse 30 in just a moment. Again, this has reference to a question asked of Job. When Yahweh shows up to speak directly to Job, he asked a series of rhetorical questions that humbled Job. And they can still humble and astound us today when we read them. In Job 38.4, Yahweh asks Job, where, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Job didn't exist when Yahweh laid the foundations of the earth. Job doesn't have understanding. Job, in fact, needs to get wisdom. But Lady Wisdom was there when Yahweh laid the foundations of the earth. The acts of God in creation are described poetically here. The images used summarize certain aspects of what we see in Genesis 1. Particularly, Lady Wisdom reflects on the ways that the Lord shaped and ordered material creation, dividing waters from each other, creating boundaries, borders, and limits between different realms of creation. Some of the language does double duty to instruct us regarding wisdom's role in doing the same thing for our lives. For example, verse 29 gains some emphasis by having three poetic lines rather than just two. 
And the verbiage used applies to God's word in various other passages. As Lady Wisdom refers to God's assigning a limit to the sea, she uses a phrase that occurs in Exodus 15.25 to describe how Yahweh made for them a statute, commanding Israel to listen to Yahweh's voice and to do what is right in his eyes. Likewise, the Lord set a statute that the waters wouldn't transgress his command. Lady Wisdom is saying that she was there to see how Yahweh established limits for the sea in creation. And the implication is that she knows how to set proper boundaries for human behavior. And as the waters of creation can't go beyond what the Lord has spoken, so humanity ought not transgress the commands of God's wisdom expressed in God's word. Lady Wisdom is really good at setting proper limits because she learned from the best, God himself. Thus, when God's wisdom comes to us in the form of parental discipline, in the form of scripture, setting limits on our behavior, biblical commands, prohibitions, teaching us what is inappropriate and appropriate, righteous and sinful, good and bad, we should listen and learn and heed. Verse 30 takes us back into controversy. Let's isolate the first line for a moment. The ESV has, Then I was beside him like a master workman. The King James Version is quite different. It says, Then I was by him as one brought up with him, implying that the Hebrew word refers to a young child growing up under the tutelage of her father. The 2011 NIV provides a third possibility. Then I was constantly beside him. At his side. The rest of verse 30 and verse 31 go on to focus on her joy and delight in relationship with the Creator, which many folks see to support the King James rendering. Lady Wisdom would then be referring to her younger days when she played at the feet of the Creator as he did his work of creation. Her play in his workshop was a joy to him. He observed her and rejoiced in her as he did his work of creation, and she rejoiced in the wonderful work her father was doing. If the word refers to a master workman or a craftsman, which is the majority interpretation, then there may be an implication that she joined Yahweh in his work. She partnered with him in his work of creation. This would be the only hint in this passage that Lady Wisdom was involved in the work of creation. Her involvement was probably communicated back in chapter 3. The major barrier here to this understanding in this passage is that the Hebrew word is masculine, as reflected in the translation master workman, which would be very odd to apply to lady wisdom. As consistent as Solomon has been in fleshing out the feminine personification, it's surprising if he meant this, that he wouldn't add one letter to the end of the word that would turn the word into craftswoman rather than craftsman. Nevertheless, as far as I can tell from my own study, the King James and the ESV represent the most common understandings of this word in this verse. The 2011 NIV rendering, constantly, is the minority report, but I believe it makes the best sense in the context and reflects the best linguistic arguments for the form of this particular Hebrew word. All in all, then, Lady Wisdom is merely claiming to be a joyful observer and a diligent student of of the Creator's work. One writer suggests we have here the original Take Your Daughter to Work program, figuratively speaking. 
and she didn't miss a thing. As Yahweh did his masterful work of creation, therefore she is uniquely qualified to teach the people of this world how to live properly in it. But in the midst of verses 30 and 31, a temporal transition can be observed. Up to this point in the passage, we've seen Lady Wisdom's origin on day one of creation, before anything material was brought into existence. She's claimed to be a careful observer of all that God did in creation. And in verse 30, tantalizingly, Solomon uses the word daily, which could be more literally translated as day and day, or day by day. Given the significance of the days of creation in Genesis 1, she may be indicating that she took great delight in each and every day of creation as God brought new things into existence and organized and shaped different parts of his created world. Moreover, her delighting in each day probably reflects God's own assessment, seeing that various aspects of creation were good, and then finally, very good. But at the end of verse 30, when she says that she rejoices before him always, she indicates that she continues to rejoice over God's creation. She then elaborates on her rejoicing in verse 31, indicating that the particular source of her joy is God's inhabited world, emphasizing the completion of creation and the filling of it with people, human beings, Indeed, the final phrase of the section, which the ESV translates children of man, is more literally the sons of Adam. Thus, the first word of this section of poetry back in verse 22 was Yahweh, and the last word of the section is Adam. These sons of Adam are the objects of her address in Proverbs 8. Even in the face of their fall into sin and foolishness, Even in the wake of human rebellion against God, Lady Wisdom continues to find delight in human beings. This is because humanity still exists as the image of God and still retains a reflection of their Creator. The image is broken and the reflection is cracked, but the reflection remains distorted though it may be, just like you can still recognize your face in a cracked mirror. Here, again, seeking to pull away from understanding Lady Wisdom as being the Son of God, it's important to notice that as much as she's depicted as calling people to listen to her words, as much as she's inviting people to respond to her voice, ultimately she's rejoicing in God. And she will point those who do respond to her words appropriately to worship God, not herself. One writer suggests that she can be viewed as a kind of worship leader rather than an object of worship. She is depicted as joyfully worshiping God as he created all things and then continuing to joyfully worship him because of the excellence of his finished work of creation. Thus, to follow God's wisdom as expressed in God's word is an act of worship. And as Lady Wisdom is depicted as finding joy in the Creator, so we too should rejoice in God our Savior as we seek to obey Him. That then takes us to our final temporal marker in our final section. We move to the now in verses 32 to 36. We briefly considered these verses last week as a proper conclusion to the message from the first section of the chapter, but we need to take a closer look this morning. So let's read verses 32 to 36. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. 
Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. As we mentioned last week, Lady Wisdom concludes by pronouncing two blessings, two congratulatory statements for those who keep her ways and for each one who listens to her. Intriguingly, there are seven such blessings in the book of Proverbs as a whole, as there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Make of that what you will. When you read the phrase, blessed is or blessed are in the Bible, almost always the Hebrew and Greek underneath the English are indicating a positive assessment of a situation. Some translations use the word happy to translate the idea, and that is wholly unhelpful in my opinion. The biblical words do not describe an emotional state or a feeling. Some versions use the word fortunate, but that word smacks too much of paganism for my taste. The idea of good fortune or luck is a wholly unbiblical idea. In fact, if I may issue a challenge to the way we speak as Christians, I would heartily challenge all Christians to evict from your vocabulary the language of luck or lucky. Christians ought not to wish each other good luck when facing a doctor's appointment, a job interview, or other opportunities where the outcome might be uncertain or unpredictable from our vantage point, shouldn't we rather say something like, may God bless you? That's a much more appropriate context to say God bless you than after someone sneezes. Christians, listen. When we casually speak of luck to unbelievers, we are testifying that we don't believe in the God of the Bible. Is that too harsh? Lady wisdom reflects a far more real reality than lady luck. And here she assesses the situation of a person who listens to her, who seeks to obey her and put her principles into practice as blessed, to be congratulated. She knows what is best. She knows what is good because she was there to see the original creation of everything that exists before it was subjected to futility, before it was marred by human rebellion. If you're pursuing God's wisdom, you are to be congratulated, regardless of the challenges there are in that pursuit. If you're pursuing God's wisdom, you are to be congratulated. In verse 34, the one who listens to her words is pictured as watching daily at her gates, patiently waiting beside her doors, This is to depict those who respond to her call as students who come early to her classroom, eagerly awaiting the teacher's arrival. I don't know if that's a realistic illustration or not. Or perhaps the image is more intimate. Commentator John Kitchen suggests that the picture is of a lover anxiously waiting at the door of his beloved, anticipating her return. The promise of verse 35 is echoed in Proverbs 18.22 in terms of marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. Thus, Lady Wisdom says, whoever finds me as a wife finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. Yes, this old lady, (laughs) this ancient woman offers eternal life. How can she do this? If she's not an Old Testament stand-in for Jesus, what does she mean? 
Well, her words, her teaching, her ways point to Jesus. She teaches the same wisdom that Jesus teaches. Her message is the same as Jesus' message. Solomon is depicting God's own wisdom, the wisdom that shapes the creation, the reason the world makes sense at all, the reason the world continues to function despite human sin and despite divine curse. This concept is being personified. Jesus lived in perfect harmony with this concept, with these principles. Indeed, since Jesus is God, Lady Wisdom is a personification of His eternal wisdom. But I've gotten ahead of myself. Before we go there, we should observe that Lady Wisdom closes with a warning. We dwelt on this last week, but allow me to make a couple more observations. First, notice that the last word of this chapter is the word death. This echoes chapter 7, where Solomon's warning to his son about adultery, physical and spiritual adultery, ends with the word death. The stakes are high. Eternal life hangs in the balance. As we saw last week, and as we've observed several times in this series, the path of wisdom leads to eternal life in the new creation. Every other path is really just one alternative path, and it leads inexorably to eternal destruction in hell. But notice also the poetic way such a person is described. As we observed last week, the phrase, he who fails to find me, utilizes the basic Old Testament word for sin. Thus, the warning is against anyone who sins against Lady Wisdom. Such a person does violence against himself, against herself, But again, Solomon's poetry may communicate at two levels. The basic idea of this Hebrew word is the idea of missing a target. Thus, in contrast with the one who finds Lady Wisdom, we have a reference to those who miss her. In some ways, that is a more tragic way of expressing the reality. At first, we might take this as meaning that a person might be aiming for wisdom, looking for wisdom, and yet come up short fail to hit the target because of lack of skill or some other inadequacy in the seeker. And indeed, Lady Wisdom did warn that there comes a time when those who seek her will not find her. However, the final line of this chapter indicates a more forceful, more active hostility. All who hate me love death. Such starkness. Those who miss Lady Wisdom are not depicted here as merely those who were distracted and so passed by her without even looking. Nor is the picture of those who set an arrow on their bowstrings, aimed directly for Lady Wisdom's heart. Think Cupid's arrows, not an assassin's crossbow. And fire away, only to have the wind take the arrow a little to the left. No, the picture is of those who are standing face to face with Lady Wisdom, hearing her shout loud and clear, an invitation for them to come receive all the benefits she offers, but respond with flared nostrils, red faces, burning eyes, and raging hatred, rejecting her loving proposal. This is the truth of those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ even those who politely decline with a mild, sorry, not interested. And while such people would probably never say it this way, they are committed to, in love with, and willingly embracing death. This core truth about such people will only be clearly revealed on the last day and for all of eternity, 
as they gnash their teeth against God, His wisdom, and His Son. So avoid such a fate. Listen to Lady Wisdom. Hear her point forward to the embodiment of God's wisdom in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the eternal, only begotten Son of God. And in Him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Thus, everything that Lady Wisdom portrays as a literary, symbolic convention, He literally lived out in real life, culminating in His sacrificial, substitutionary death for sinners, His victorious, life-giving resurrection from the dead, and His ascension to enthronement on high, our only wise King. As we've said before, to listen to Lady Wisdom is to listen to the Lord Jesus. This is not because Lady Wisdom is the Lord Jesus. Rather, it's because they communicate the same message. So, how exactly does Proverbs 8, 22-31 point to Jesus then? Instead of seeing Jesus as the wisdom God used to create, shouldn't we rather see Jesus as the Lord who created Yahweh in the Old Testament is the personal name of the one God of Israel. Yahweh is Elohim. That is to say, Yahweh is the one God who exists as a plurality. Thus, where we see Yahweh in the Old Testament, we are seeing Father, Son, and Spirit acting and speaking in perfect harmony. Sometimes, On a few occasions, an Old Testament verse or passage will draw attention to one person, such as in Genesis 1-2, showing the specific activity of the Spirit of God. But most of the time, in most of the verses, when we see the name Yahweh, when you read the name Yahweh, which undoubtedly in most of our English Bibles continues to be put into English by the unhelpful Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, small caps font, or in some passages, God, capital G, capital O, capital D, small caps font. I appreciate the recent Legacy Standard Bible produced by John MacArthur and faculty of the Master Seminary because it consistently brings the divine name over into English as Yahweh. And I hope more English translations will follow suit. In either case, when you see his name in the Old Testament, read it as a Christian. Pretty much all of the more than 6,000 references are to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, unified in their words and their deeds as the only true God. Thus, in Proverbs 8, 22-31, Jesus possessed or acquired or begot wisdom at the beginning of his creative work. Jesus knit together wisdom before he created the earth. Wisdom was there in Jesus' presence as Jesus created all things, visible and invisible. Wisdom was there observing Jesus working with his Father and the Spirit as he created all that exists. Wisdom rejoiced in Jesus' work of creation all the way up to and beyond Jesus' creation of Adam and Eve. And when the eternal Son of God became flesh so that He might dwell among human beings as a man, wisdom came too. Jesus is God's wisdom, not merely as a personification, but as a literal flesh and blood embodiment. Solomon's lady wisdom is a mere personification, 
The reality Solomon was describing as an abstract concept is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the one who actually delivers God's wisdom to people. And we receive God's wisdom as a gift as we trust in Jesus and as we seek to obey Him. God's wisdom is personified by Solomon as a literary device, explained and unpacked throughout the instruction of the Bible and embodied in the man, Jesus Christ. And then the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, how do we find Lady Wisdom and thus find eternal life? Trust Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard sometimes when we are pressed to engage in controversy around your word. Give us patience with such things. Give us a desire that we want to know your word as clearly as we can. And help us to be motivated to do the hard work required. We thank you that your spirit helps us in that work. We thank you that we can trust you to provide the wise guidance that we so desperately need. And we thank you that we can trust the Bible to be communicating your word, shaped by your wisdom, to give us everything we need for life and godliness. So help us to rest in it. Help us to stand on it. And help us to never neglect or abandon it. Give us grace to draw us close to your word and to your wisdom and help us to see clearly the way we might exalt Jesus in our lives and in our reading of scripture. So thank you for showing us our savior. Thank you for showing us our sinful selves. And thank you for showing us the work that you've done to save us from our sin and our foolishness. We rejoice in you and we seek to worship you, triune God, because you are fully worthy of all of our worship and devotion. Stir us up, change our lives, help us to think differently because of your word, by your spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.